Welcome to the Control-Alt-Azure podcast. I'm Yusip. And I'm Tobias. Join us for a journey in the cloud. Hey there, and welcome back yet again to another episode of Control-Alt-Azure. My name is Tobias Zimmergren, and I'm here again with Yusip Hoine. What's up, my friend? Hey, Tobias. So top of mind today is home automation. But before I spend a little bit of time here, I just want to mention that I'm immensely happy that my Stream Deck that I had some some trouble with, I think a few episodes ago, it's working again. So the timer button on my Stream Deck device on my on my desk, it now works. <laughs> so I don't have to get rid of the Stream Deck. I can so you don't have to upgrade to the big model. No, no, I'm, I'm perfectly fine. I think this is the large model. Uh, how many keys? 15 keys it has, I think. So the only key that I need is the timer, and it works now. But on home automation, so I'm researching this into uh, uh, just a little bit. So I, I'm trying not to dive too deep into this because I understand that you can just spend all your days researching what you could automate at home. Uh, so I, I don't mean the usual, I have a Philips Hue and a Nest doorbell. So not just getting an IoT device and say, my home is automated now. But I'm more thinking about full home automation. So a solution or a standard and connectivity system that allows you to control heating, cooling, security, power, electricity, monitoring, uh, let's close the curtains at six o'clock type of things. And it seems there's there's really three options. One is called KNX. It's an open standard. So you can buy the hardware and the software from different vendors, but they have to be uh, supported on the KNX platform. So that's one. The other one, especially here in the Nordics, is ABB, free at home. But I think this is sold under a different brand outside the Nordics. And the last one is Cosify combined with all the other IoT stuff you can get. So you could have some open source stuff. You could have the Philips here. You could have your custom Raspberry Pis and all that. And for now, it seems KNX is the most complex one, but it's also the one that gives you everything. If you're willing to put in the hours to con configure and understand how the whole setup is going to work. All right, very nice. Um, I mean, I'm on the level of using Philips Hue and a couple of timers and custom integration points. But I, I did see now when, when I was looking at building house, you can, in Sweden, I, I guess this is common everywhere now, you can build houses online and click a button and you, you get a quote uh, and then they come build it. So I did that and, and most of them had like, do you want to add smart home integration? And I thought, well, I have my Philips Hughes and whatever, but this was like next level stuff. Everything yeah. super integrated, every socket in the wall, every electric electricity outlet, everything was monitored and connected. And yeah, it, it can really, you know, go to the next level when you start looking into home automation. So on my side, I went a little bit more analog in the last couple of days. So last weekend I slept in the woods again. <laughs> Again, <laughs> again, and we, I, I know we talked about that in the past. And so we did a, a 20 kilometer hike in pretty rough terrain and with pretty heavy gear. 
Uh, and most of the gear I, I have when I go outside is, of course, some kind of tarp. So in case the storm comes, I can protect myself and I can cook and keep my warm in there. But also a lot of cooking equipment because I like food. I like cooking. I especially love cooking outdoors. So heavy equipment, I don't know, maybe 15, 20 kilos in the backpack, which is quite a lot if you walk this distance in, in a tough terrain. Uh, so many pauses. Um Possibly one or two uh, times we stopped and cursed because it was pretty, uh, pretty exhausting and, and perhaps a bit too heavy, but extremely recharging. So that's one. And the other analog thing that I've done is I'm getting used to this uh, indoor biking because I got one of these devices for uh, training on my bike indoors. So I'm using my real full carbon road bike on a device indoors. I remove the back wheel and I put this thing on. And I can ride with virtual friends or actual friends in real time uh, in a, a virtual world, which is fitting now in 2020 when you don't perhaps want to go as much outside. So a little bit more analog and, and a lot of exercising and staying healthy. This is kind of my motto for 2020 because the, the year has in certain ways sucked. So, so trying to stay positive and, you know, with strong health. Uh, moving forward is is what I've been doing. So, so you mentioned the analog approach, and just to clarify, my analog approach is that I sit on the sofa with the intention to watch the latest Mandalorian episode, but my phone is in a different room, so I cannot use that to dim the lights. And the light <laughs> remote control is next to the TV, and it means I, I would actually have to get up. So when I get up and reach for the remote control and click on dim. That's the analog approach for me nowadays. Right. Okay. Get, yeah. Got it. So it's really the device-free type of mode instead. Yes. But uh, but I get the point. Yeah. And and that is the thing I'm getting away from as well. It's uh, I, device I, time, less device time, less screen time, more everything else. I fully fully understand that. I might need to do that at some point. So this episode is Azure Update. So we've had this approach now. I think for a couple of months that we go through the latest Azure updates. And since there's so many announcements and updates, we, we dig through all of them and, and highlight what we feel are most interesting ones or also the ones that might affect a lot of people. So let's start with your list first, Toby. Right. So I, I have a couple of things on my mind that happened recently. One of those is .NET 5 is now already available in app services. The .NET team announced they had this .NET Conf, the, the conference for .NET, and they had a kind of a release party, if you will, for .NET 5, which is the next version of .NET Core, if you will, consolidated. So that is now live and is supported in Azure App Services. So, so kind of based on their, they have this early bird or early release framework. Based on that, Every, every release moving forward, every new .NET update will, from day one of the release, be readily available in the Azure platform for the Azure App Services. So that's pretty cool. So next time they will release .NET 6, for example, you don't have to wait X amount of months until it's ready in the App Service. It's just going to be there because it's already been prepared. Um, now, the, the one thing that I want to mention about .NET 5 we're not going to drill into all the, the different capabilities of .NET 5 and C-Sharp 9 because there's a lot, and I don't even comprehend most of them because there are so many changes I haven't had time to look at them. But .NET 5 is a current release. 
and, and it's not an LTS. So that means it will be supported for three months after .NET 6 is released. And as a result, um, you can expect to support .NET 5 through the middle of February 2022. This is um, according to the Microsoft Dev blog. So uh, .NET 6 will be an LTS release uh, or long-time support, and that will be supported for three years, just like .NET Core 3.1 is. So if you're currently on .NET 3.1 uh, 3 Core, you might want to contemplate whether or not you should go to .NET 5 because of the supportability. It is not an LTS in .NET 5. It's not long-time support. It's a current release, and there is a distinction. So if you are contemplating upgrading to .NET 5, you know, regardless actually if you're in Azure or not, take a look at what it means uh, being in an LTS support or not, because this might affect your decision. But TLDR, already now it works with .NET 5 in app services. That's pretty slick. So, so it, what's on your list? It sure is. And I think this is what a lot of companies often say, that when they go to the cloud, they expect the cloud to be evergreen, meaning that whatever is the latest and greatest, it has to be available in the cloud. Alrighty, so on my list, I will start with the, with the more exotic and perhaps the more challenging ones, because this is something that I haven't used in years. I might even say in decades. So support for Oracle WebLogic Server on Azure Kubernetes Service is now available. So Oracle WebLogic Server, and I, I actually had to look this up because it's been at least 15 years since I last struggled, I mean, configured a WebLogic server myself. So that's the platform for developing, deploying, and running enterprise Java applications. And it works in on-premises and in the cloud. And now with the latest uh, upgrade, there's also support for running Oracle WebLogic server on Linux as part of your Azure Kubernetes service in a cluster. When was the last time you did something in Java, Toby? Um, I, I guess, I mean, in, in our world, in the Microsoft space, like most of our peers, probably during study, right? So when you were in yep. school, it was mandatory to learn uh, object-oriented programming, depending on what you studied, of course, and it was Java. And even though um, when I went to university and, and my first year there, I was already using .NET because I've been coded, coding for a long time before I, I started school and they did everything in Java. So to my dread, I had to kind of give up on .NET for, for a while, but I had all the concepts of object-oriented programming. And that's it. After that, not touched Java or Oracle or anything like it ever since. For me, it's been exactly about 15 years since I last compiled something in Java. For me... All the way back when I when I was in school and when we initially got computers and somebody said, hey, perhaps we should learn something with this. I think we had uh, uh, this sort of programming language that was uh, evolved from basic and it was called Logo. And I'm not entirely sure if it was a Finnish invention or a European thing, but it was very local. And you had this small turtle on the screen and you would give this fairly simple commands. And through that, you would understand what the for loop is for and how do you do something while something else is happening. 
and while your little turtle was moving on the screen, it would leave, uh, it would plot a line. So you, you could do these fairly simple vectorized pictures. And depending on what you were capable of doing, it sort of stood as a testament to your rudimentary programming skills in about 1992 or so. I need, to, I need to find that. I think it's available somewhere. All righty. So that was Oracle WebLogic Server. What do we have next? So one thing that I noticed is uh, Redis 6 is now in preview for Azure Cache for Redis. So if you use uh, Azure Cache for Redis, which I do in some of my applications, it's basically a way to make your apps faster because you can have a, a super cool distributed cache. And I guess the, the update here is to, uh, to announce that Redis 6 is in preview in Azure Cache for Redis. So if you are working with that, you can start looking at that. You can try it out. So there's a couple of new capabilities and, and features with the latest edition uh, with version six. So if you, again, are working with Redis or, or Azure Cache for Redis, take a look at that. So, so you can understand what it means to upgrade, if there's gonna be any impact for you, but also what new capabilities in Redis that you can now make use of. Sounds good. The next one on my list, uh, and if you thought the previous one was was something exotic, this is not that exotic, but this is, awfully specific, but I wanted to highlight this. So Azure Machine Learning updates, and this includes for Azure ML and Azure ML Studio, a couple of specific things. And again, I openly admit I had to look this up. So there's support for NVIDIA Triton integration in Preview now. And I haven't used NVIDIA Triton inference server ever. So this was formerly called the NVIDIA Tensor RT Inference Server. Now it's NVIDIA Triton. And it's, it's a service for deploying your AI models at scale in production. And, and those models could use any number of different frameworks, such as TensorFlow or PyTorch or ONNX Runtime or a custom framework even. So now Azure Machine Learning uh, Studio allows you to utilize the capabilities from NVIDIA Triton through the integration. That's one. The other uh, update in Azure ML is Azure Machine Learning Terminal. So you can run uh, command line operations for Azure ML Studio, that's in preview. And also managed identities are now in preview for your Azure ML deployments. And last but not least, automated machine learning custom featureization is in general availability. And I have to say, the last one, I have no idea if it's a great thing or not, but just take my word for it, it's a great thing. <laughs> it sounded like a lot of Greek, but I think you need to be in the ML or AI space to understand uh, some of those things. Yeah. Um, so on, on my list, um, there's an interesting update for anyone working with Azure Cosmos DB uh, the serverless offer for Azure Cosmos DB is now in preview on all available APIs. And what that means is because we touched about uh, upon this in a previous episode, and I think you mentioned that Azure, Azure Cosmos DB will have a serverless mode, and this now exists. And all the AP, um, APIs, which is the SQL API, Cassandra API, Gremlin API, Table API, and Azure Cosmos DB API from MongoDB, all of those now also um, have support for serverless. 
right? So it's in a preview as of this recording, but depending on and when you're listening, this may be released already. Um, and that is a way for you to use Azure Cosmos DV, um, uh, the database on a consumption-based plan rather than you know, pre-allocating. So um, traditionally in a provisioned throughput mode, you have to commit to a certain amount of throughput and these are expressed in request units per second or, or if you've used Cosmos DB, you, you know what that is and you know that you can hit the, the thresholds quite easily depending where kind of you configure them and you have to uh, pay for what you allocate in, in that sense. And the, and the cost of your database operations is then deducted from the number of request units available every second. And then at the end of the billing period, you get billed for the amount of throughput you have provisioned, not consumed. Whereas, and that's the traditional uh, way. So now with the serverless way, so in the serverless mode, you don't have to provision any throughput when creating the containers in your Azure Cosmos account. So at the end of your billing period, instead you get billed for the number of request units that were consumed by your database operations, not provisioned, right? So you don't have to provision and say, I need this many request units, and then that's what you pay for. Now you say, I'm not gonna do that. I'm gonna go with the serverless and you're gonna pay nothing until you actually start using it. And then you pay for the usage. Uh, and of course, for the storage. So that's pretty pretty cool. And then the main use cases for that is uh, if you have light traffic or uh, like moderate burst ability. So every now and then you need to burst up, but otherwise you have a fairly consistent kind of workflow and, and workload. Or if you don't need like the super lightning performance, because there is a specific kind of performance characteristics um, relative to, to surplus. Um, but that's perhaps something we also should have a full dedicated episode on uh, going Cosmos DB serverless. But that was the update. The, the update again, serverless offer for Azure Cosmos DB is in preview on all the APIs I mentioned. So that's pretty cool. If you don't want to pay upfront, use the serverless and pay as you go. Pretty cool. This is great. Uh, when we got Cosmos DB for the first time, I recall a lot of people were asking for this sort of approach that instead of committing to a certain request units and paying upfront for that, could we just go with the regular platform as a service model, meaning the serverless offer here? And now, finally, a couple of years later, we have that in preview. And I think this opens Cosmos DB uh, for a wider audience. So many more developers can now test and try Cosmos DB if it would be a suitable data engine for their needs. Uh, also realizing that they don't have to commit upfront to perhaps a large investment without really knowing for sure that Cosmos DB will be the solution they end up using. So for me, moving on to something a little bit simpler, at scale migration automation support with Azure Migrate and Azure PowerShell. So this is a fancy title, but what it means in essence, uh, it means two things. One is that there's a new Azure PowerShell module available that allows you to migrate from a VMware um, cluster or VMware host with VMs to Azure in an agentless approach. So oftentimes when you have a bunch of VMs, let's say in a local data center and you want to get rid of the data center, migrate everything to Azure, you might not have permission on the VMware host to install anything because it might be a shared host running other companies' VMs as well. So now with the PowerShell module, what you can do, you can more easily 
pick up those VMs, migrate them using Azure Migrate to uh, Azure, and then they'll result as Azure VMs, obviously. And the other thing that's part of this announcement is sample scripts on GitHub. So when you want to do at-scale migration, perhaps you have 5,000 VMs on a bunch of VMware hosts or, or a number of clusters. Now there's a, there's a repo on GitHub. Uh, we'll put the link on the show notes that allows you to leverage the scripts to build your own custom approach that, again, uses this Azure migrate behind the scenes, but now you have PowerShell that allows you to automate a lot of the things that you would normally have to go to Azure portal and click through the different things. And if you have thousands of VMs, this is a nice approach. Yeah, sounds cool. Um, so I, I don't have many updates left, but uh, some of the more important ones, at least I think so, uh, if you deal with infrastructure and security, uh, the new Azure firewall capabilities will be in GA in Q4 2020, which is pretty much now. Um, and, and sometime during Q4, so not today, but possibly tomorrow, who knows. Um, and that's custom DNS, DNX, uh, DNS proxy capabilities, and uh, FQDN, or fully qualified domain name, filtering on network rules. Um, so that, if, to take a, as an example, the FQDN filtering in network rules enables you to now um, use a domain name for your network rule instead of the, the static or the, the fixed IP address or the, the range with a Cedar uh, pattern. So you can also use a, a domain name. It does by design not allow wildcards. So you cannot put wildcard.yourdomainand.com. You have to put the actual domain name uh, with the FQDN of your endpoint in there. Uh, so that could be interesting if you're working with the infrastructure, securing your assets and communication between uh, client VMs and, and servers and whatever it is, uh, might be interesting to take a look at that. And the Azure Firewall also have a couple of new configuration settings for uh, custom DNS servers. The custom DNS is pretty cool because now if you have a DNS and you have an Azure DNS, for example, running, and you want to uh, pretty much run everything through there, now you can use uh, Azure Firewall in front of that. So you can say that the custom DNS should flow through the Azure Firewall. So if you go to your, um, like your whatever company, VNet Firewall that you have, the, the Azure Firewall, you go to a, a DNS tab, which is now in preview. So in the Azure portal, if you go to your Azure Firewall, there will be a tab called, or a, a menu item called DNS. From there, you can say, DNS server, either the default, which is the Azure provision one, or a custom one. And then, for example, you enter 10.0.0.4 or whatever as the custom DNS server, which is the DNS server you have. And then you can also enable the DNS proxy. And now, from that moment, the Azure firewall will also handle these requests. So they, they will kind of pass through the firewall, and that's pretty cool, because now you don't need to circulate a lot of these things and, and build ways around it. You can just push a button and get everything pretty much to run through the firewall, which is good. So I'm not sure how much will change or how much of these capabilities and features will change before GA. So I'm, 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 I haven't tried them out yet because when I do try them out, especially things related to security, um, I pretty much always want to use them in GA when I know this is now the way this feature is designed and it's been tested and it's you know battleground ready. 
so I can roll that out in production. So I have not tested with any real workloads at the moment, but it's good to know if you want to start playing with this and understand what it is. The Azure Firewall uh, has now custom DNS, DNX proxy capabilities, and, and the FQDN filtering on the network rules. So if you're working in this space, this might be a pleasant update for you. That's a lot of good updates on Azure Firewall. Uh, for me, the next one that I have is new constrained vCPUs capable VMs are available. So, so let's, let's unpack this. Um, the, the thinking here is that when you deploy a VM and you realize that, oh, this is, this is going to be in a role that requires a lot of memory. So you go with the more memory optimized VM families, but then what it often also means is that your core count, the virtual CPU count goes up at the same time. So if you're deploying a piece of software that's licensed per core, it means you have to pay more for the license just to get more memory. So this is a new sort of family as part of the VM uh, families, allowing you to still retain that memory optimized approach, meaning I want a lot of memory for this VM, but give me less virtual CPUs so that I can optimize my software licensing in that sense. So this is available now for uh, through ESV4, EDSV, and EASV4 uh, classes within Azure VM families. All right, cool. I, I think that was most of the important updates I had on my mind. Do you have any, any more on your, your list? I have one. And again, this is not far out there because I know a lot of people working on this service. But this is also something I haven't really worked in, in a real project uh, for a couple of years now. So Q&A Maker, that allows you to build bots, often chatbots, they now have deep learning support. And the idea here is that if you're building a bot, let's say you're planning on deploying that to your website, and when somebody visiting your site requires assistance or wants to ask for more help, you can pop up this small chat icon. Then they'll say something like, hey, do you sell this and that? So now with the deep learning support in Q&A Maker, assuming that your bot on the website is based on Q&A Maker, allows you to uh, precisely get phrases or short answers from long answers. So if your bot now asks the, the visitor to your website, uh, did you mean this or that? But instead you get like a wall of text back from the real human sort of going to all the different options. The promise now is that through deep learning support, you can more precisely parse what the exact uh, key bits are in a long answer that you were given. And also there's a promise of simplified resource management. And to me, that always sounds like marketing speak. Well, it's simplified, but well, well, how is it simplified? So I didn't test this yet, but this is one of the things I really need to spend some time next week. And when I get the kids to bed, when I'm done with the latest Mandalorian episode, I will fire up Q&A Maker and see what the simplified resource management means to me. Yeah, makes sense. That's, it's pretty exciting area with the Q&A Maker. I, 
I haven't used that for a long time myself. I only dabble with it a little bit, but never had a real use case. But today, a lot of people working with collaboration and, and integration to teams and other things, I see a lot of people making use of that. So that's also welcome changes, definitely. I, I think the, the great thing here is that something as complex as deep learning is now readily available in a, in a fairly easily approachable tool like Q&A Maker so that especially these power users, these citizen developers and, and business decision makers, they can build real business solutions, leveraging fairly advanced AI techniques without needing to fully understand how the algorithms work. Because you can say, well, we have deep learning, it works like this. Okay, I'm happy with this, let's move forward. And I feel that's sort of the great benefit that the simpler tools, and this is not to say Q&A Maker is always simple, but it's simple to get started with. The simple tools leveraging the more advanced technologies bring so much more power for businesses now to build their collaboration and productivity solutions as well. I'm, I'm really happy to see this sort of evolvement. Yeah, makes sense. And I think that was all we had for Azure Updates. As always, thank you for tuning in and until next time. See you then. Thank you for tuning in to the Control-Alt-Azure podcast. Find out more and read the show notes on controlaltazure.com. Stay tuned. Thank you.